This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This edition of the BBC Music Magazine podcast is sponsored by Adagio, the leading streaming service for classical music. Discover Adagio's tailor-made search, expert playlists and exclusive recordings for yourself. Visit podcast.adagio.com and enjoy 14 days for free. So welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm the magazine's managing editor, Rebecca Franks, and with me in the studio are deputy editor Jeremy Pound and reviews editor Michael Beek. Hello. Hello. This month, we're diving into the January issue. But before we do that, let's find out what's been going on in the classical music news recently. So, Jeremy, what's caught your attention in the newspapers this month? Well, recently we had two press releases, one hot on the heels of the other. Now, the first one um, told us that Essa Pekka Salonen was going to be leaving as conductor of the Philharmonia Orchestra in London. And he's been there for about 11 years. He's, he's not going yet. He's going to be going in 2020. Um, but at that stage, we thought, oh, gosh, well, that's sad. But where's he going? And then the next day, we get another um, press release telling us that he's off to the San Francisco Symphony. Now, um, followers of the magazine will probably be familiar that um, Michael Tilson Thomas has been at the San Francisco Symphony for a long time. It's been a sort of a, a very fruitful long-term relationship they've had, but he's now kind of moving off into the sunset and Esapekka Salonen will be a, a great replacement for him. He knows the Californian audience well because he used to be at the LA Philharmonic, so he's sort of going back to where he once was. Now, why this is 
particularly exciting for us, not just because that he's going there, is that he now leaves a vacancy, which we can now all speculate ah. as to who's going to fill it, because it is a very prestigious post with a really forward-looking orchestra, which has done some stunning things under Salon and Stenia. And I'd be interested to know what you both think, who, who might take it on. It's quite an interesting time for London because there's been quite a lot of moving and shaking in those those top London posts now with, with um, the LPO also looking, it's going to be looking for someone as well. Mm-hmm. I haven't yet put my thinking cap on for who might go there. You know what I mean? And where's Osmo Venska going? Because he's leaving Minnesota. Do we know that? We don't know that yet either. Because so maybe it's, could he go well, to the Philharmonia? <laughs> well, it's quite possible because yeah, he has been. I mean, he, he did hold the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra post once, and so he knows this country very well. Ed they, Gardner, he's could, up in Bergen at the moment, but potentially. Yep. Or they might go for someone young and relatively unknown, which is becoming quite a quite a trend in in this country at the moment. I suppose also with the Philharmonia, they've been doing so much work with all their digital projects and their virtual orchestras. So I imagine that's something they probably yes probably probably would like to develop. I think because they've been engaging so many people. I think with their virtual orchestra and virtual um, conductor maybe. One thing I don't think they'll go for, I don't think they'll go for a sort of an old hand. I think they will go for someone pretty vibrant and current just because that is the whole outlook mm-hmm. of the orchestra. Yes, yeah. OK, well, um, on to another news story, which I've just been reading about this week, actually, and this is over in the US. So this is the story that uh, Elizabeth Rowe, who is the the principal flautist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, is suing her employer for gender discrimination. She is paid, we think, around $70,000 less than the male principal oboist, John Ferrillo. And she has been there since 2004 and has just filed this lawsuit. Uh, The Boston Symphony Orchestra has said that the flute and oboe are not comparable, in part because the oboe is more difficult to play and there is a larger pool of flautists. They say that gender is not one of the factors in the compensation process. Um, However, she's filed this lawsuit. Uh, Her oboist, who she is friends with, has written a statement in support of her, saying she's every bit my match in skills, if not more so. And it's just a very interesting time. I think it's the first case of its kind under this new equal pay law that's come through in Massachusetts this year. Um, And and very interesting kind of casting a light on, on what orchestral players play, uh, are paid. Now, because it is going to court, we're not really able to discuss too much about the wrongs and rights of this particular case. But what it does do is throw up some interesting thoughts about the future, about if this one succeeds or this case doesn't succeed. Well, if it does succeed, what will that mean for um, future kind of pay pay brackets in orchestras? Will they have to actually apply a fixed rule? We don't know. And um, there's a really interesting piece, very in depth piece in the Washington Post on this, which really sets it into context of um, the principal roles and principal sort of chairs in all the big orchestras in the US, um, and also it tells the sort of stories of of both the players involved and. Um, it's a really fascinating story. I definitely recommend going to read it. Mm, interesting. You sort of think on the surface of it that yes, principals ought to be paid the same in the orchestra, but you know, who knows? There are all sorts of levels of, of sort of things to consider. I mean, if the one person's been playing for a much, much longer time, then you know, it's more experience, I suppose. But who knows? Well, another thing I thought was interesting about it is just get, yet again casts a light on the difference in salaries for US and UK orchestras mm. because the figures that yeah. we're talking here, you know, um, he's being paid. 
they think around three over three hundred thousand dollars a year, and she's on two hundred and fifty thousand around that each year, which is just it's a different league really to what UK orchestral players are, are paid. Sure, absolutely. absolutely. If you want to, if you want to earn a, a good amount, go to the states. Go to seems the states. to be the answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, Michael, what have you been enjoying in the news recently? Uh, well, I was uh, interested in the Grammy nominations this month. Uh, and uh, some of the nominees are, are notable, uh, particularly because we featured them of late in our review section. So I thought that was interesting. Um, James Ennis, the uh, violinist, is nominated for Best uh, Classical Solo Performance. That's his performance of the Aaron J. Kernis Violin Concerto. And actually, Kernis is also nominated for Best Composition for that piece. Uh, the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra nominated for their Beethoven Strauss uh, disc, which we gave five stars to uh, in our Christmas issue. And also the uh, Kastelsky Memory Eternal, uh, which was performed by the Clarion Choir, uh, conducted by Stephen Fox. So that was a five-star review uh, in our November issue, and that's been nominated as well. And I think we're going to hear a clip from that now. We are. So, yes, this is a piece actually called Memory Eternal from, from that work. It's the final part, uh, the Clarion Choir. Yes, that was the Clarion Choir, Stephen Fox uh, singing Memory Eternal by Kostelsky. They're doing some excellent work, sort of digging out um, digging out forgotten pieces of choral music, aren't they, and just performing them beautifully. Mm-hmm. I think you, you reviewed this one. I reviewed you? that one for the magazine and gave it gave it five stars. Um, I have to admit I was absolutely blown away, not just the, by the, the passion and the sort of accuracy and the blend of the singing, but the recorded acoustic of it. Apparently, completely natural acoustic is just absolutely stunning. It's a beautiful, beautiful disc. And on the subject of the Grammys, I just have to say that I'm particularly pleased to see the King Singers uh-huh, getting yes. a Grammy Award for their gold compilation, which I was sort of involved tangentially in a way because I kind of worked on the book which accompanied the disc. So on, from a personal point of view, I am very pleased nice. to see so them Good there. to see them get a nomination, absolutely. Worthy nominees all round. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Great. Well, I think we'll turn now to the January issue of BBC Music magazine. So if in January you start to think about the 12 months ahead, perhaps jotting down your resolutions for the year, then there's a famous piece of music all about the seasons that you might like to pop onto the CD player. And it's the subject of our January cover feature. Jeremy, tell us all about it. Yes, we have put Vivaldi on the front cover and specifically we're talking about Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And what we have done is that we have taken a look at his life and career, we framed it in the context of the seasons themselves. So we introduce his early years in the context of spring. Then we move on to his sort of glorious middle period in summer, sort of slightly sort of later years and sort of slight decline in popularity introduced by autumn. And then his final years, which is quite a sad story. I don't think I'm giving away too much of a spoiler here to say that he he died in penury and that's accompanied by winter. And in each case, we we 
tell you all about the, the movement, or the concerto as it is, because it's four different concertos, and then describe his life. Um, it's written by Kate Bolton Portiati, and it's a very colourful colourful piece. And it's, it's he's an interesting composer, Vivaldi, because although he didn't move around much, he was pretty much Venice, 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 and more Venice throughout his life. He did have a sort of quite an interesting up-and-down career. Mm. And, and also in the feature, we've got um, little insights from four violinists yes. about playing the piece. And I have to say, I found that really fascinating as well, because I think it's one of those pieces that I personally sort of rather take for granted and you sort mm. of assume yes, everyone too. plays it and can't be that much interesting to say about it. And they each just have fascinating things to say about the difficulties. You know, it's really quite a difficult piece to pull off, I think. Yes, the four violinists in question are Daniel Hope, Rachel Podger, Tasman Little and Ray Chen. And in each case, they really into the piece and they explain just how Vivaldi, it's not just music, this piece, it's, it's very, very programmatic, one of the sort of earliest programmatic works, which we know, and they explain where you can hear a dog barking at one point, you can hear the insects buzzing, you can hear the chattering of teeth. Yes, it's fascinating of feet. Mm. Absolutely. And of course, if you want to hear what they're referring to, you will can listen to it on our cover CD because we also have a performance of it there. And it's performed by Iona Brown and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. And it was recorded in the proms in 1984. Now, I've ch- chosen a very familiar passage from it um, to illustrate because this morning was absolutely freezing when I got on my bicycle. <laughs> so I thought, let's go for winter. So here we go. Here is the first movement of winter. say any more about that other before we move on to the next section of the magazine other than to say that as I was on my train this morning coming down to, to work and going through the frosty Cotswolds I was listening to that and it's amazing just how well he conjures up that whole feeling of the season. Completely agreed. Right, on to another feature in the magazine. Um, this is a story about the 19th century mathematician Ada Lovelace. Now, she is generally credited with having written the first computer program um, for Charles Babbage's analytical engine. And this feature, which I found totally fascinating, tells her story. Uh, She herself is sort of much better recognised in recent years. Uh, There's even an Ada Lovelace Day uh, marked now every October. But in this piece, it kind of tells her story, but actually it also explores uh, what she considered to be the potential for computers, which wasn't just that they would be able to do numerical calculation, they could actually perhaps be turned towards musical works. Um, And it also casts a fresh light on on that by looking at her musical background, because she was a brilliant harpist, she liked to sing, Uh, she actually sponsored um, a harpist who became the, the royal harpist to Queen Victoria, and music was a really important part of her education and her life. And I kind of get the impression that perhaps that was what allowed her to have the the sort of the insight to see where computing might might be turned towards. Absolutely. She really was ahead of her time, wasn't she? It's a fascinating piece. 
Yeah, and she had such a colourful background because her father was was Lord Byron and her mother was a very, well, described as strictly moral and mathematically educated Anne Isabel Isabella Milbank and they had this very short-lived marriage they didn't really get on that well they split up after a year together so she had this kind of very artistic wild side wild sort of um, father and then very focused mother I think as well and it's interesting, isn't it, that um, she's one of... There seems to be a number of people like that from that age who are just quite brilliant, both at the arts and the scientists. These sort of, you have these extraordinary kind of multi-talented people. They're not just focused on one thing, that whatever they seem to turn their hands to, they are good at. It's, yeah, it's makes remarkable. you sick, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> <laughs> it does indeed, yeah. And I think it's interesting as well how relevant it is to what some composers and also what some computer programmers are, uh, are doing and scientists are doing today, looking at how um, AI might be used to compose music. And then we've also got a little description here of how the composer Emily Howard, who has a background in mathematics as well and computer science, how she's been inspired by Ada Lovelace and science and mathematics in her own work. Mm. So it's a story which sort of still carries on today, which is extra relevant. You wonder what Ada would be thinking of it all if you were to know. Absolutely. Yeah, indeed. Okay, let's now turn now to our recording of the month, which Michael is going to tell us all Absolutely. about. Absolutely. So our recording of the month uh, for January is Monteverdi's Vespers. Uh, it's a version of the Vespers that people might not be familiar with. So when Monteverdi uh, wrote and published the work, he gave uh, performers the opportunity to do two versions of it, uh, a sort of large-scale version and a sort of slightly sort of reduced version, if you like. Um, and most, mostly people have gone for the large-scale version, so that's the version you'll be most familiar in hearing. Um, but the, the ensemble Ludus Modalis and uh, Bruno Botov have uh, recorded the, the reduced version uh, and been very, very creative with it. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful recording. And although it's more intimate, it uh, absolutely doesn't lack power. It's a really, really wonderful, sparkling recording. Um, got a piece from it uh, now, the Nissi Dominus uh, from Monteverdi's Vespers. <laughs> Nisi Dominus from Monteverdi's Vespers of 1610, performed by Ludus Modalis and Bruno Botef. Monteverdi's Vespers is a work which, above all others, can suffer. It's an overblown, stodgy performance. So actually the, the lightness, mm-hmm. as you say, the, the thinned-out textures you get here does make a huge difference, actually. It's only 12 voices, so it's yeah, much smaller. Well, if all that music has whetted your appetite, then do head out to buy your copy of the January issue now. And we have a special discount for our podcast listeners. All of you now can get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost to just £25 and 15p. And you can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash music podcast. Don't forget also our website at classical-music.com where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews, enjoy our free download of the week and a good deal more. Plus, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. And finally, do sign up to our newsletter via the website. And now it's on with the show. (laughs) 
I recently headed to King's Place in London where I met the multi-talented artist Kerry Andrew. She is one of the many performers appearing at this year's Venus Unwrapped Festival at the venue, which is a year-long series turning the spotlight on women composers. It kicks off in January with a concert celebrating the 400th anniversary of the Italian composer Barbara Strozzi and continues throughout the year with a whole host of music from out the centuries, including, in October, Kerry Andrew and her Juice Vocal Ensemble. I wanted to introduce you and then realise you have so many different hats as composer, performer, writer that I thought actually it may be best to ask you how you'd like to introduce yourself and how you would describe what you do as oh, a man. I, I've started saying uh, I'm a composer, performer and author. That's what I say. Yeah. Composer, performer, author. Um, because I think those are the main, the main hats. They often, they often sort of merge together and become one. And we're here because this festival's come about because they're sort of taking a look at whose music is being played in our concert halls. Um, there's quite a striking statistic that research into the 2018 to 19 concert season, 15 of the world's leading orchestras revealed that just 2.3% of the music being performed will be by women composers. Does that statistic surprise you? It does a little bit because it's not... Like, we haven't been talking about it for a, a little while. Um, the PRSF, uh, Foundation for Music, were raising awareness uh, a few years ago about the, the fact that there were, at the time, maybe five years or so ago, that there were only 14% of um, their members were women. Um, that's uh, composers and songwriters, basically. Um, and I feel like... Uh, that's a bit of a shame, um, but I know that um, there's been really increased awareness amongst the larger institutions um, in the last year or two. And, and to be honest, programming does take a little while. Um, and so hopefully the sort of 2020 to 21 season might look a little bit different. Um, uh, you know, there are there are different issues around it. There's issues to do with what we sort of call historical repertoire and the fact is that we don't know much historical repertoire, orchestral repertoire by women. Um, there weren't the opportunities for women to write orchestral pieces as there are now. Um, but that, I mean, so that, you know, I, I come, come to it from the sort of contemporary angle mm -hmm. in terms of what people are writing now. Um, and if you're, if you're programming new music, I don't think uh, it should be a problem. And I wondered if you could look ahead. I think it's in October that you're going to be involved in the Venus Unwrapped series mm. with, with your vocal ensemble. Yeah, so I co-founded a, a vocal trio 15 years ago, um, Juice Vocal Ensemble, we're two sopranos and me and alto uh, and have always commissioned new music. That, that's our thing. We, we perform new music. And, yeah, so we've wanted for a long time to um, perform more pieces for the three of us in electronics. Um, and so we thought we'd take this opportunity to have uh, this concert in October 2019 to uh, perform a programme that is just voice and electronics and also commission um, three women to write us new pieces as well. So we're going to have a Gazelle Twin, um, Olivia Louvel and uh, Nuando Bitsier. Um, so we're in the process of commissioning those pieces at the moment. And the idea is for it to sort of straddle worlds a little bit, so not just feel very classical. We, we purposely looked for musicians who, um, you know, very much are comfortable in electronica worlds and also sort of, 
you know, you think of them as left field pop musicians, basically. So we're hoping to get a little flavour of that in the in the programme. When it comes to the um, sort of historic thing, we've got this picture with this fantastic T-shirt that you've had done, which has female composers from Hildegard Bingen to Chin. What gave you the idea for that? Uh, it wasn't my idea at all. It was Sarah Dacey, who's my colleague in Juice. Um, she wanted to buy me uh, something from uh, something for Christmas, and she thought about buying some sort of composer T-shirt. And then she looked uh, on Etsy, uh, and you know, she she searched for a composer T-shirt, and and Beethoven and Mozart came up and that sort of thing. She's like, right. And so she designed her own, uh, made me, uh, you know, sort of the, the first go, the trial run, and uh, and then we've been selling them for. Uh, yeah a couple of years and it's just to it's so it should work on two levels it's obviously if you wear it you're promoting uh this this select list of female composers um sarah chose all of them for a reason for them being the first female um composer to do a certain thing so florence price who's on there was the first female composer to have a symphony performed in carnegie hall um, and things like that so there was always a reason uh, other people said why haven't you got this person it's like well you we can't fit everybody on obviously and that's great um and so uh, any proceeds um for those sales in fact they're going towards our the, the commissions we've already talked about the electronic commission electronica commissions um but the idea is that the any, any profits don't go just towards commissioning women but commissioning women and men perfectly equally yeah because you recently published your first novel as well didn't you it's yeah in uh, january 2018 the first novel came out which is which was and still is hugely exciting for that to become a reality yeah does that feel quite different to your musical work in some ways, yeah. Um, in some ways, it's quite a different approach, but actually it comes, thematically comes from the same, uh, or some of the same interests. So this, the book is based on a folk ballad that I um, did a version of on my first You Are Wolf album. That's the folky hat of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was starting to try out writing fiction in earnest and was taking folk ballads and sort of playing around with them as my starting point. And so that one of those um, playing arounds um, became this novel um and and so it's to do it's to do with birds and folklore which was a big interest of mine both with my folk hat on but also with my composer hat on for a while and then I've moved on to water and done a lot of things to do with water um and again that's with with my com- composing brain and my folk brain and my writing brain um so I tend to sort of yeah move, move very slowly over a few years in in themes and sort of try explore it in all the, the different artistic mediums I work in yeah um looking to the future what are your kind of I suppose, wider hopes for the whole field of classical music, in a way. I suppose in relation to the conversations that we've been having about whose music's performed and and played and and what things might help us have that more inclusive vision. I think we're heading in the right direction. Um, I think there's been, hopefully, a bit of an acceleration in the last couple of years in terms of inclusivity, not just in terms of gender but in terms of ethnicity and and other things too um so i don't know i just sort of hope that again i think it's really i I feel like often the the, there's really good work being done in in much smaller institutions uh sort of fringe you know fringe groups or, or smaller ensembles and perhaps it's harder sometimes to instigate change in the bigger institutions but those are the ones that will have great influence so as you said at the beginning it's, it's certainly looking to um our most famous orchestras and our opera houses um as well as you know the sort of cutting edge new music groups 
um, who I feel are doing lots of good work already. So I think it is heading in the right direction. I think it's always just about questioning, always, you know, um, I think Gillian Moore from the South Bank said something um, once about, yeah, just, just turning, on, uh, turning on your awareness, always questioning, always looking at your programming and making sure that it does feel that it's representative of, of our world, I suppose. This edition of the BBC Music Magazine podcast is sponsored by Adagio, the leading streaming service for classical music. Discover Adagio's tailor-made search, expert playlists and exclusive recordings for yourself. Visit podcast.adagio.com and enjoy 14 days for free. And now to the final section of the January podcast, First Listen. Jeremy, what have you been listening to recently? Right, well, I'm going to go back a few years, just briefly. Many years ago, I say many years ago, it was nine years ago, I went to Valladolid in Spain. Um, I was actually there to interview the pianist Jean-Yves Thibaudet um, about a new disc of Gershwin. And while I was there, I had the great privilege of hearing the Orquesta Sinfonica Castilla y León playing in their concert hall, the Miguel Delib Concert Hall, um, which was brand new at the time. And the orchestra was kind of quite a young and vibrant orchestra. And I was absolutely blown away by by the performance. I've been keeping a sort of steady eye on the orchestra ever since then, kind of looking out for their recordings, etc. And a particularly exciting new one has come because it is the first on their own label. Now, when I saw them, they were conducted by Lionel Pringuier. He's now moved on and they're now under Andrew Gawley, the British conductor. And their first disc on their new label is Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2 and Isle of the Dead. And I'm not disappointed by it. It's a really vibrant, lively, kind of thrilling performance. Um, there's plenty of um, recordings of this, these two works around, but this is one which I shall very much treasure. And here we are from the finale of the Symphony Number no. 2. <laughs> Listening to a disc that arrived from the pianist Tom Poster and the violinist Eleanor Urioste. And this is a really gorgeous programme of works for violin and piano. It's a sort of very old fashioned programme in feel and in sort of style as well, looking back to that sort of golden age of violin playing. Uh, lots of miniatures and arrangements, um, works by Chrysler and, and Gluck and Debussy, um, Elgar. Just one of those really gorgeous, sort of put it on, just really sort of wallow in, in it in a way. But very stylish playing. Um, also, I think this is a CD that means a lot to them. Their, their CD notes sort of describe their meeting on the BBC New Generation artist scheme and sort of immediately feeling that they had this musical connection that has given rise to this to this particular CD. 
and they've arranged the pieces into four categories, sources of inspiration, childhood memories, an international celebration, and then a tribute to the great American songbook. And I have just chosen a really lovely arrangement of Moon River that... uh, Tom Poster has done and it was actually a request from a friend the violinist Magnus Johnson to perform at a friend's wedding and this arrangement features two violins and Magnus Johnson joins Eleanor as well to to play on it. you've been listening to this month? Well, I've made a bit of a discovery for me this week. So uh, I've been listening to a new disc by composer Philip Sawyers, who I wasn't familiar with before. Uh, this is on the Nimbus Alliance label, and they, they appear to have released a number of his works over the, over the years. Um, this uh, disc comprises his violin concerto and a trumpet concerto and a couple of other pieces as well. Uh, it's the violin concerto that I've fallen in love with. It's performed by uh, Alexander Sikovetsky, who is brilliant. And uh, it's just a really thrilling piece of music. And it's not just about the violin, the orchestra as well, the accompaniment that they provide is absolutely thrilling, real wonderful landscapes of colour and melody, and it's really, really exciting. So uh, let's have a listen to uh, the Allegro from the Violin Concerto, I think. brings us to the end of this episode of the BBC Music Magazine podcast. Thank you for listening and do join us next month when we'll be having a look at what's in the February magazine. Bye. Bye-bye. The BBC Music Magazine podcast.